You are listening to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Stay tuned for the Heartland Labor Forum, radio that talks back to the boss. To the Heartland Labor Forum, a weekly show of news, information, and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City. This show is produced by a team of volunteers from a broad range of workplaces and unions. The views expressed on the Heartland Labor Forum are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any unions involved. Welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum. Tonight's show is being underwritten by Riffers Local 20 and the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers Local 53. Roofers Local 20 Apprenticeship provides the highest quality of roof applicators in the region. Accredited by the United States Department of Labor Bureau of Apprenticeship Training, our program provides Local 20 with a workforce second to none. Craftsmanship and quality is what we do. In time and within budget, on time and within budget is how we do it. For more information about roofer apprenticeships, call 913-281-2527. And IBEW Local 53, covering the western half of Missouri. If you are a power lineman, traffic and street light technician, or suburban te- substation technician, and are not in a union, go to IBEWLocal53.org to find out how to join and get the pay you deserve. The Heartland Labor Forum and KKFI thank our underwriters for their support. On tonight's show, despite a number of attempts by the UAW to organize foreign-owned southern auto plants, there's been stiff resistance from the foreign companies, politicians, community, and even workers themselves. On tonight's show, we interview Stephen J. Sylvia, who has written the first in-depth assessment of the United Auto Workers organizing in the South in his book, The UAW's Southern Gamble. Then, we'll review a classic novel about the Italian fiat workers' strike that led to a mass uprising. It's Nanny Balestrini's We Want Everything, so the show is all about auto. In the news, update on organizing Starbucks and KCPT, and what happened Monday at the Jackson County Legislature. Our feature at the end of the show is Know Your Rights with Michael Amash. He's going to be talking about joint employers. And now for the news. And this is the news from our side, December 21st, 2023. 
Here's an organizing update. First, the KCPT workers organizing with NABIT, the National Association of Broadcast Employees and Technicians, uh, this is about them, we're told that KCPT has hired Hush Blackwell, the large firm based here in Kansas City and in many other cities, as their lawyers. KCPT has challenged the union's definition of who is in the bargaining unit, trying to cut out Nick Haynes and the marketing department. As we reported previously, workers were treated to a so-called fact sheet from management, and presumably the attorneys uh, uh, also presented that, and it's about unions, which recommends that workers not support the union, even though KCPT claims that it's neutral. Then there's Starbucks and some good news after months of no news. On December 8th, workers at the 41st and Main Street store, just down the street from KKFI, overwhelmingly voted to join Starbucks Workers United with a vote of 18 to 13. Partners at 41st and Main Street became the 11th Starbucks location in Missouri to join Starbucks Workers United in one of the most rapidly growing organizing campaigns in modern history. Callie Shepard White, a two-year employee at Starbucks, said, Now that our store has won the election, I'm hoping things change for the better. Things like barista wages, staffing, health care, reinstatement of benefits like digital tips, and an overall improvement for partner and customer peace of mind. If we're going to set our souls on the shrine of capital, we deserve a life of plenty, or at least enough to get by, she added. Kelly turns out to be a true believer. She said, I've always had labor as one of my core tenets. It's what makes the world go round. It's the backbone of the world, and we deserve to be taken care of. Discrepancies in labor lead to further social and economic inequalities, like the rising cost of living. These are things we can fix and uphold, starting in the workplace. And we have more power united together than divided by corporate greed. Well, welcome to the labor movement, Callie. Last Friday, the Missouri Workers' Center, Stand Up for uh, KC, put out an urgent call for people to show up at the Jackson County Legislature meeting Monday morning because legislator and chair Darren McGee had introduced a resolution to put a three-eighths cent sales tax on the ballot this spring for Jackson County, with that tax running for 40 years. It would support the Royals and the Chiefs. The resolution made no mention of a community benefits agreement, which could guarantee good jobs for workers at the stadiums and other benefits for those who build a new Royal Stadium downtown and an adjacent entertainment district and parking. The Missouri Workers Center has been campaigning for months to pressure the Royals ownership to agree to a community benefits agreement for or CBA. So far, the Royals owners have been to say the least, tight-lipped and non-committal about a CBA or even where they want to locate, mentioning bolting to either Clay County or Kansas. So when Legislator McGee introduced his resolution without any commitments to the people, the red flags went up. Monday morning, there were at least 75 activists ready for a fight. They marched into the meeting, filling all the seats and spilling out into the hallway. 
according to Jeremy Alhaj of the Workers' Center, because of the pressure, the McGee uh, corrected his proposed ordinance to require the Royals to sign one or more community benefits agreements before the $0.38 sales tax would move to the April 2nd ballot. That's a victory, but some things are still unclear. For instance, the legislature still hasn't voted on the ordinance. Also, the ordinance says that the CBA must be acceptable to county government, but doesn't say how the county will determine what's acceptable, and it doesn't state clearly what will happen if the royals ultimately do not sign a strong CBA, and it doesn't give low-wage workers a seat at the table to, to determine what an acceptable CBA would include. The Jackson County Legislature is scheduled to meet again on December 29th at 10 a.m. Central Time. So far, the chairman and other legislatures say this is a placeholder to have something to vote on once the Royals do sign a CBA and a lease agreement. For now, they say they will not be voting on this ordinance on December 29th. Stay tuned. And Labor Notes reports that an appeal from Palestinian unions for global solidarity has elicited unprecedented worker-led actions in Italy, Canada, India, Belgium, Spain, and the United Kingdom. Israel's military attack on Gaza has killed more than 18,000 people, actually 20,000 by now, injured nearly 50,000, and displaced 1.9 million, according to the United Nations Office of the Cord- for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. In an urgent call on October 16th, Palestinian unions and professional associations asked unions abroad to stop arming Israel, given the military and diplomatic support for Israel coming from the U.S. and the European Union. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu told local government officials, according to the Financial Times, as the assault stretches into its third month, so the Palestinian unions appealed to unions and workers to refrain from manufacturing, transporting, and handling weapons and surveillance technology destined for Israel. They also formed the organization Workers in Palestine with the international allies to build solidarity and support. We need three things from the U.S. Munitions, munitions, and munitions. That's what Netanyahu said. Palestinian workers have been in the front lines in Gaza, saving lives and rescuing communities amid relentless bombardment, said Samara A.A. Hassanain, member of the Palestinian General Union of Public Service Workers and Trade, Gaza. As we continue to carry out our duties, we extend our heartfelt salute to those who are working tirelessly to halt the arms trade with Israel, he said. Numerous unions worldwide have heard the call in Spain, Belgium, Italy, India, and the UK, as well as France, Denmark, and the Netherlands. There have been calls and actions to stop shipments of arms to Israel. That's the news from our side. The news tonight was read by Stephen Hill, and I'm Judy Ansel. Looking at this sea of red shirts today, I see power. Power of United Class. Around 13,000 of our members are on strike. And depending on what happens as we continue bargaining, more may be joining them really soon. In their economy, workers live paycheck to paycheck while the billionaires buy another yacht. 
in their economy. We make all the sacrifice and they take all the profit in their economy. One of our Good evening. I'm Judy Morgan, President Emerita of the American Federation of Teachers, Local 691, and former Missouri State Rep for the 24th District. The music selection you just heard was the 2023 UAW Strike Anthem, Stand Up. Tonight, we'll talk to Stephen J. Sylvia, author of the UAW Southern Gamble, Organizing Workers at Foreign-Owned Vehicle Plants. A professor at American University School of International Service, Stephen teaches international international economics, international trade relations, and comparative politics. He researches comparative labor-employment relations and comparative economic policy with a focus on Germany and the United States. The UAW Southern Gamble is the first in-depth assessment of the United Auto Workers' efforts to organize foreign-owned vehicle plants in the American South, including Daimler, Mercedes-Benz, Volkswagen, and Nissan. Stephen, I found your book, book both informative and insightful, and I'd like to welcome you to the Heartland Labor Forum this evening. Thank you, Judy. And let our audience know that you're coming to us via Zoom from Japan, where you are teaching a class there. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Okay, so did you have a target audience in mind when you um, envisioned your paper that turned into a book? And did that somehow influence your research and how you researched the book? Well, I mean, the original working paper, I, the target audience was basically uh, union people, you know, the, and so that's what I was uh, focused on. And when I expanded the book, that didn't change, uh, that uh, I really wanted it to be something, a book that would be accessible. So I wrote it as a, as a history uh, and in a lot of ways, I think about it, it's a bit sort of like a flip book, you know, the old flip books that we had when we were kids, that uh, what I did is I read an awful lot of um, newspaper articles, and I went into the archives for the UAW and the archives for German unions. And, you know, when you're experiencing it real time, events will happen once, you know, or twice a month. But what I was able to do is put them all together so you could see how it how things unfolded over 20, 30 years. So I'm wondering, did you actually talk to union leadership, uh, union rank and file members? Yes, I, I spoke to both. And, uh, you know, so in uh, in the United States, I spoke to uh, Bob King, who was a president uh -huh. of the UAW, spoke to Ray Curry uh, before he became president of the UAW. Um, you know, the regional union leaders. I also spoke to people, um, you know, on the line in the factories uh, in the South. I also spoke to German uh, union people, uh, both union and works council uh, representatives. How about, did you, were you able to talk to anybody in Japan? Because I know your last chapter goes into the Nissan organizing. Yeah, that was the toughest one to, to, okay. to talk to people in Japan. I Since I've been here, I've spoken to people in Japan, but I really didn't get a chance when I was writing the book to talk to Japanese unionists. I have to say I was relieved when I talked to the the Japanese union people. I just spoke to them last week that oh. there wasn't like a big thing that I didn't that I, that I missed <laughs> in the book. So, so I felt good about that. So, so in terms of Japan, you had to rely more on the archives and newspaper articles and yeah. and things like that rather than talking to the actual union folks. Yeah. 
did you talk to the business people at all? The I did. I okay, did. so you talked to both sides. Right. How, how how receptive were they? It depended. Uh, you know, the Japanese companies were less interested. I didn't get to talk to anybody there, but I did get to pe- talk to people. Uh, on the German side, both uh, in management at Volkswagen and at Daimler. Well, in the first chapter of your book, and that was the one about Daimler, I believe, the organizing efforts that went on there. And that was, I believe, of the four cha- the four main companies you wrote about, that was the only one where there were successes in terms of the organizing. And you talk about transnational union cooperation between employee representatives and how that aided in the successful uh, organizing effort at Daimler. So I wasn't familiar with that term, transnational uh, union organizing. So could you talk about that? Sure. So, you know, you can use the word international, you can use the word transnational. The choice of the word transnational means just across at least one country. You know, international implies worldwide. So uh, transnational is a little narrower as a term. And the thing that was interesting um, in the case where the UAW was successful was organizing Freightliner, which Daimler owned. So Freightliner makes trucks uh, and they have a number of plants in North Carolina. There was uh, an instance where Daimler had recently bought Freightliner. And as a result, the Germans included UAW representatives on the board for Daimler. And uh, and so that meant that you were able to have discussion at a very high level about what was going on in the plants in North Carolina. The, uh, you know, so this is a very different system that the Germans have. It's called co-determination. And, uh, and so in this system, German employee representatives were able to say to Daimler management, look, if you hire permanent replacements, and if you cause trouble for our colleagues in the United States who had won a representation election, but were having a hard time getting a contract, the German rep said, if you cause trouble for them, you're going to have trouble with us here in Germany. Mm. And it really helped convince management back in the U.S. that not to hire permanent replacements. And they ultimately had a strike, a recognition strike, but ultimately the UAW won and they got representation at the Mount Holly, North Carolina plant. So do any U.S. union uh, leadership people serve on any of the boards on companies in the United States? You said that in Germany that happens where the, the boards of the companies actually have union representation. Does that ever happen in the United States? It's exceedingly rare. Yeah, that's what um, I thought. It has happened uh, when Chrysler got concessions from the UAW, you know, back 50 years ago. One of the things that the UAW got in return was one seat on the board of Chrysler. As Things changed as Chrysler, you know, was bought first by Daimler. They kept the seat. But then when Daimler sold Chrysler to a private equity company about 15 years ago, the UAW lost that seat. Mm -hmm. The only other instances were like back in the 70s. Again, it was in exchange for concessions in the airline industry. Occasionally, the unions managed to get 
one seat on the board of some of the airlines, but those have long since um, disappeared. So it's very rare. But in Germany, it's it's the law for larger companies to have for the biggest companies, the employee representatives have half of the seats. And for medium-sized companies, they have a third of the seats on the supervisory boards for German companies. That's a very interesting idea. I, I, I kind of like it myself. I think that'd be great if there were worker representation on the boards. Yeah, you know, Elizabeth Warren and Tammy Baldwin have both put in legislation oh. to try to get that as part of U.S. law. But, you know, it hasn't really You had a really interesting quote, I thought, at the start of Chapter 2, and that delved into the organizing effort at the Mercedes-Benz plant in Alabama. And the quote was from um, the president of the United Steelworkers of America, Local 351. His name is Kenneth Walters. And he said, it's kind of hard to organize a guy driving a Mercedes to work every day. And you had that right at the beginning of that chapter. And I was wondering, why did you include that quote so prominently in your book? Well, you know, I think it captured the Mercedes case really well because Mercedes in Alabama is the only one of these uh, foreign-owned auto plants that pays comparable to the UAW contract. It makes it hard, particularly hard, to organize that plant. Now, how they do it is they have a lot of temporary employees. Those temporary employees who are from a temp agency, they don't get really high wages. But the the core workforce, which would be about two thirds of the of the workforce, it this plant in Alabama, the Mercedes plant, they get a they get a pretty good deal as far as their contract. They also have job security de facto that you know it's very rare for any layoffs to ever happen. So that's one tactic that the companies have used effectively to um, make it very hard to unionize is this two-tier structure of um, permanent employees that have a much better deal is the upper tier, but the lower tier are temps that have a have a much worse deal and, and can be fired, you know, pretty quickly. We are listening to the Heartland Labor Forum tonight, and we're talking to Stephen J. Sylvia, author of the UAW Southern Gamble, Organizing Workers at Foreign-Owned Vehicle Plants. You talked about Marvin Runyon of Nissan, and that was uh, the Japanese company you talked about as the principal author of the U- Union Avoidance Playbook. And I think a lot of unions are dealing with these issues now in organizing efforts. So talk to our listeners about union avoidance and how it impacted UAW organizing at Nissan. Yeah, Marvin Runyon is an interesting person. Uh, He worked for Ford for about 25 years before he uh, became the head of the first Nissan plant, which was built in Smyrna, Tennessee. And he was big, lanky Texan, and he really did not like unions. And so when he, and he really became fascinated with the Japanese and what the Japanese were doing. So what he did is he did a combination of things that he had thought of on how to make it really hard for the UAW to get a foothold in this new Nissan plant and to bring on board as many Japanese things as he could. 
So when he started, one of the things that he did is he wore the same work shirt and work pants that uh, somebody on the line would wear. And he had the little oval over the pocket that said Marvin on it. And uh, he instituted calisthenics uh, that people did at the beginning of the workday. That didn't last very long. Uh, and uh, but it sounds one like of other things that he did uh, it did carry on, and other companies have adopted them. One of them is like getting rid of the divisions between labor and management in terms of having a single cafeteria, single parking lot, and a lot of things which you know made management a bit closer, a bit more approachable. So that was one element. A second element was to do a lot of preventative steps so that the people who were hired would be less likely to be interested in joining a union. Uh, they went out of their way not to hire people who had worked uh, and been union members in the past. They set the plant in Smyrna, which was a small town, still is, outside of Nashville. And a lot of these plants workers will will come from uh, 100 miles around to work in the plant. And because there's no like small town downtown that they don't really get together and they don't really have a lot of interaction, which makes it hard to organize. They also, when they hired people, they screen them in terms of characteristics that psychologists have hmm. found hmm. lead people to be less likely to join unions. Wow. If somebody had been in the military, if somebody had been involved in sports teams, and this is what I didn't know until I started reading this stuff. Firstborn people tend to be less likely to join a union. <laughs> Did he start the mandatory meetings too? Was that part of his playbook? Yeah, that's part of it. And, you know, one of the things that those will come in if an organizing drive starts. He didn't start mandatory meetings. Those go way back, okay. the, you know, captive audience meetings. Right. The thing that Marvin Runyon did was a lot of one-on-one -on -one meetings. So oh. when the union started a drive, he had the supervisors meet one-on-one -on -one with employees and say, you know, we want you to be happy here. Uh, is there anything we can do? Mm -hmm. And they, they were also, what they were doing is just taking the temperature of who seemed to be pro-union and who didn't seem to be pro. You know, another psychological thing that they introduced in that plant that is spread is they put in a bunch of TV monitors all over the place and they would play pro-Nissan messages and they would play anti-union and anti you know, big three domestic company messages on these TV, TV monitors. So they really went all out to uh, to really, you know, have a psychological influence on the employees in these. In writing the, the book, the UAW Southern Gamble, did it change your perspective on the UAW or unions in general? And I'm sorry, we're getting kind of short on time. You know, one of the things that struck me in writing it is, that the UAW was really innovative in the kind of things that they did, that they were among the first unions to bring in uh, using cell phones, you know, back in the 80s. And they did a number of innovations. Still, it is really hard to organize in the South that uh, 
you know, another thing that, you know, that's another takeaway that is, um, you know, obvious uh, to one level, but seeing why it's so difficult that uh, in the case of Volkswagen in Chattanooga, the first time they tried to organize, the company was actually sympathetic toward union organizing. But because of that sympathy, the local Chattanooga and Tennessee politicians they stepped in and in practice ran an anti-union campaign of their own. So the, you know, the hurdles that companies face in the South can be not just company that's resisting mm -hmm. things, but if the company looks like it wants to recognize the union, you can get that business community to step in and, and fight the union all on their own. Was was uh, that plant the one where the U.S. Senator Bob Corker was so anti-union also? Yes. Yes. OK. And so it was also the political establishment that exactly. came on the unions, too, as I recall. Yeah, because Bob Corker, when the plant, when they first agreed to do the plant, he was mayor of Chattanooga. It was before he became senator. And one of the things that he extracted from the company was in a, was a, a confidential agreement not to help the UAW. That was something that, you know, that the local political establishments in the South tend to do. So looking forward, and we just have a little bit of time left, I want your reaction to a comment that was proclaimed by the, the new UAW president of the United Auto Workers, Sean Fain, and uh, who recently came off winning a, a pretty good some pretty good stuff for his members during that strike. And he said, when we return to the bargaining table in 2028, it won't just be with the big three, but with the big five or big six. Which yeah, you know, I think Sean Fain, he's absolutely right in setting organizing foreign plans as a front and center goal for the UAW. Because the UAW lost their, their, uh, their complete coverage of the auto industry beginning in the 80s. And now uh, only a minority of employees that work in an auto plant are UAW members. So getting that back is essential to, to enhancing the bargaining leverage of the UAW. And capitalizing on the momentum from the, sex, from the successful strikes is an excellent idea. So it makes a great deal of sense uh, you know, I think they, they, they've taken lessons from uh, the things that I wrote about back in the 2010s and earlier. And I think the big lesson that the UAW has taken is that trying to do top-down organizing, trying to persuade the companies to recognize the union probably isn't going to work and that you really have to do a bottom-up grassroots mm -hmm. campaign. And so that's what they're planning to do. And uh, I think it very well will yield fruit. Well, I'm Judy Morgan, and thank you so much, Stephen J. Sylvia, author of the UAW's Southern Gamble, Organizing Workers at Foreign-Owned Vehicle Plants, for joining us tonight from Japan via Zoom on the Heartland Labor Forum. Thank you again. Thank you, Judy. It's been a pleasure to be on. Tune in every third Thursday of the month at 7 p.m. for the People Power Hour, brought to you by KC Tenants. Every episode will address different aspects of the tenant struggle and America's problematic history with housing by providing in-depth historical analysis, testimonials, and stories from leaders who organize in their communities and who envision a better world where housing is treated as a human right. 
So please tune in every third Thursday of the month at 7 p.m. for the People Power Hour, brought to you by KC Tenants. Give the gift they will talk about for years to come. A KKFI guest DJ certificate, a one-time donation of $200, or a monthly sustaining donation of $16.67 will get your loved one an hour to share their musical taste on the local music program of their choice. A board operator will be provided. They will even get a recording of their DJ experience. Go to kkfi.org and click on the donation button or call 816-931-3122 for more information. And that is Mike Patton's Kenote on his album Mondo Kane. And welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum. I'm Tino Scalisi. If you're just now joining us, I ask that you lock in, pull over if you can safely, settle down, maybe make a cup of espresso, gather around the speaker. Maybe plug in your playback device to whatever large sound dispersal system you have access to, especially if you're at work right now. And for a very special surprise on our show, not only for Nani Balestrini's novel, We Want Everything, a fiery and intense story set in an auto factory in 69 northern Italy that reads fresh as paint, by the way, but also for a very special surprise guest. She was shortlisted for the Booker Prize in 2018, a two-time finalist for the National Book Award in 2008-2013 for her debut Telex from Cuba and Flamethrowers and later Mars Room. The incredibly talented Rachel Kushner. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tino. <laughs> um, Rachel, firstly, I just want to say uh, what a privilege and honor it is for me and for our show and for our audience uh, to speak with you tonight, I've read all three of your novels uh, in order in around 1919, or excuse me, 2019 and 2020. I love them all. Um, thank you so much. Yeah. In, well, th- thank you. Thank you for writing them. Thank you for, for sharing with us. Um, and, you know, uh, ba- you know all, all, th- on their literary merit, of course, but also as uh, someone who is from the Motor City, I'm from Detroit, uh, I am an auto worker, third generation, and, you know, maybe this can be an entry, like a cool way to sort of get into Nani's work. Um, and it has to do with identity. Um, and if I can, real quick, I just wanted to give you the sort of the 60 second version of why I found your work so attractive. First, uh, I worked in housekeeping in Kansas City at a casino uh, with a guy who wrote for the National Labor Federation in Cuba, uh, pre-revolution, and then right uh, directly thereafter. Uh, and there's so many wonderful stories. And reading Telex from Cuba, your debut novel, sort of put me into a place in history in a way that I just didn't have access to before. So there was the fiction, and that really helped with that. And then there was also the flamethrowers. Again, I'm an auto worker and a great-grandson of a Sicilian immigrant, and your novel hit those two points for me in a really uh, beautiful way as well. 
Uh, and more than that, just for all of you who are listening, these books were just a hell of a lot of fun to read. And the same goes for Bill Estrini's book uh, and that you wrote the foreword to. Can you tell me what it was about We Want Everything that, um, that made you say yes to writing the foreword and to kind of being kind of a spokesman for Balestrini's work in, in the U.S. anyway? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, first, thank you so much for mentioning my novels and for reading them. And it's, you know, in terms of honors, it's, um, it's really a great honor to be, to be read by people and to see that they can draw their own personal connections between what they read and their own lives and what they care about. Um, so in terms of Nani, I had read first uh, a novel of his called The Unseen. In Italian, it's The Invisibili, The Invisibles. Mm. And that's a book that he wrote later um, about the what's called the movement of 77 in Italy, which kind of comes out of the automotive labor union, what they call the hot autumn of 69, but also included students and women, all kinds of people who were rejecting the kind of rigid and limited terms of very structured class society in Italy in the 1970s. Um, I read that first. Mm. And I, I read it while I was writing The Flamethrowers, mm. my own book that includes, you know, a lot of scenes from the 70s in Italy. I'm also interested in labor history and also, frankly, machines um, <laughs> and modernity and where the sort of excitement of speed and the violence of class oppression sort of intersect, but not in a polemical way. Right, right. Just, you know, in, in terms of of art and what the novel can render scene that was previously invisible. So I read that first and I wrote the flamethrowers and then um, I got an email from Nani Balestrini that he had read my book in Italian translation and he wanted to meet. So oh, wow. I happened to be um, in Rome and I spent the day with him, and he was a very, very amazing man. He came to the airport to greet me, <laughs> and we spent the day together. And I can't remember where I was going, but I was leaving Rome and needed to go to the train station, um, Termini in San Lorenzo, which is like the kind of great site of the uprising in the 70s in Rome. So it had this sort of symbolic resonance in Nani took me to the train station and waited on the other side of the turnstiles. Maybe I have actually, I, I ended up writing about this in a, in a piece I wrote after Nani died um, as a, to be read at his memorial. In any case, we met, we made a connection. Then um, Vogliamo Tutto, uh, We Want Everything, had not been published in English, as far as I know. My husband had read it in French, okay. just because that's the language he reads better than Italian. I had read it in Italian. My Italian's not that great, but I found out that Verso Publisher wanted to do um, an English-language edition, and I, I think they got in touch with me and asked, and the answer was, of course. Um, <laughs> it is an explosive, incredible book for many reasons just as a reading experience yeah the voice is so urgent so funny 
so devastating, so outraged, and so kind of, um, you know, it's this guy who comes from the South, ends up working on the assembly line at Fiat, and decides that the organized labor movement that's controlled by the Communist Party is not going to work for him. And that's the beginning of, you know, I guess you could call them wildcat strikes. Right, on right. Assembly lines. Um, so I love the voice in the novel. Um, it's also a novel that does something very unique. It's not Nani just sitting in his office as a kind of, you know, a bourgeois writer, which he was, <laughs> imagining the lives of working class people at Fiat. This was the result of Nani being at the factory gates during these strikes, turning on his tape recorder, working side by side late into the night with people from all walks of life, and specifically people from uh, the assembly line, and kind of finding a way to record their voices and put them into the stream of an eye, you know, a first-person witness to history. Sure. And it's just really interesting, and as far as I know, not replicated anywhere else. Well, what I wanted to ask you is that by doing that, uh, by using that... <clears throat> I don't, it's not a. It's not a form. Maybe it is a formal choice to use the the subjective eye in his uh, in his writing uh, to stand in for. You know, I read in your foreword. You know, not only for one like particular and historical man who ended up outing himself at the at the the, the memorial, but also for the the nameless, as you say, the nameless thousands who um, c- can read this work. Because I have to tell you. Um, that when reading this work, I'm like, <laughs> this is, I mean, it's not me, but I mean, this is like a lot of the guys that, that I work with at, I work at Ford Motor Company, by the way, and have for 25 years. My dad worked at Ford Motor Company at the Rouge plant in uh, Dearborn, my grandfather before him. Um, and man, I mean, just <clears throat> hearing, like, so hearing that voice, hearing that subjective eye, it, it absolutely just felt like I was right in the middle of the, of the heat. Right. I mean, then it's so interesting that you work at Ford and, as you say, are the third generation automotive worker. We say it's a genetic um, disorder know, passed on from father to son. <clears throat> I, you know, and I, I, I'm not that myself, but coming out of, um, I guess, what I would call like a motorcycle scene, I knew many people who came from sort of the, you know, deindustrialized rust belt yeah. who. Um, were the descendants of people who'd worked in automotive factories and had worked in them themselves. A friend from Ohio who worked at Fisher Body, and his dad mm. worked at Fisher Body, as did his grandfather. And he would tell me these stories about, like, getting injured on the assembly line yeah. and then being whisked into this underground medical facility <laughs> where the company is going to great lengths to prevent people from filing workers' comp claims. And it, it's like a Buster Keaton film. Man, you hit it. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Comedy yeah. is undercut by brutality. Yeah. And yeah. so I think that that eye is very natural to connect to. There is something universal. I met someone recently who had worked at a Mercedes plant in Stuttgart. And the stories that he told me were so so bizarre and fantastical and yet 
you know, undercut by the same brutality that Nani is able to excavate with that voice, whether it is his friend Alfonso, you know, who, as you point out, shows up at his funeral, um, or, you know, a collective kind of voice that is filtered into one fictional character. It all feels very real, and it's the story of the 20th century, and still now people working on assembly lines and having to deal with factory politics at yeah. great risk. Yeah. And, you know, there, there was a line uh, for me in, in your forward, and you, you quoted from him, and I have to, to ex, uh, delete the expletive, but only a drone, quote, only a drone could spend years in this uh, expletive deleted uh, thing uh, and do a job uh, that, or a prison, excuse me. Uh, let me redo that. Only a drone could spend years in this prison and do a job that destroys your life. Um, that really sort of uh, stuck out for me. And it reminds me of some something that I was reading, and I can't remember if it was, who was it? Was it Simone Weil? Maybe it was, uh, who talks about uh, the affliction. Um, and so in terms of the title of the book and the movement that came out of it and the placards that, you know, we want everything, there was that... Uh, Herbert uh, uh, Marcuse sort of uh, uh, refusal, uh, the great refusal, the the protest against that which is, and um, and I think about, you know, what for people who do work on the assembly line and myself included, but what you know, the big labor movement push, I think, in this country in the past 10 years has been the, you know, the fight for 15 movement or um, uh, 15 and a union was was the rallying cry. And it's a marked difference from what was being asked for in 1970s in Italy. We want everything. And I, I wonder if, so you say in your foreword that you had a conversation with Nani Bellastrini about, uh, you know, these are different times. Uh, there's different circumstances, different people, and we need to find sort of new ways, or people will find their new ways. Um, and I wonder if, in 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 modern times, in 2023, uh, would that sort of thing still apply? Would you still be able to have a national movement that can fight for something greater than uh, sort of the traditional labor union demands? I know it's a long question, yeah. convoluted. No, it's a, it's a keen and warranted question, and I'm not sure I'm the person to answer it because, you know, I'm not an expert on labor movements. I'm not an intellectual. I'm just somebody who reads and who imagines yeah. and tries to sort of, I don't know, you know, make art. But yeah. I'm interested in all of these things, and it just so happens that my, my husband, Jason Smith, wrote a book about automation and he's written extensively about um the labor leader james boggs who you probably know b-o-g-g-s from detroit and my husband jason says that the scope and magnitude of the labor movement and on the assembly lines among you know the uaw in the 20 mid 20th century was just significantly much larger than anything we're seeing right now. But I would like to think that we are having some kind of um, a, new, a new labor movement and 
maybe connections can be drawn from teachers to nurses um, who both have had very active unions in the last few years to United Auto Workers and some sense that people are fractured because of the service industry and precarious labor, um, you know, and less skilled, you know, jobs that can, like where people can collectivize. Right. Um, but there's something going on. And, you know, I think that Nani was very smart to say, you can't apply my book to things right now. And what he's doing, I think, in saying that is actually remembering, with or without nostalgia, that what's required to forge relationships with other people and make something new, whether it's a movement or a novel, is to deal with what you see around you and not try to reproduce the past. Sure. Interesting. Interesting. And I, <clears throat> I, I sort of on that point, and I feel so bad because I, I, I feel like I could talk to you for like two or three hours on the telephone, but I'm not, you know, we've got another two minutes or so. And um, you got to go back to work. I don't know. Actually, you know what I did, uh, Rachel, is I took off today in order to do this interview and happily so. And then I'm and then I'm off for the next two weeks for Christmas. So this is fantastic. Oh, good for you. Yeah, thanks. Um, but I wanted to say, you know, working on the assembly line, it was just a, a, you know, a couple of days ago, but uh, very often when I look around me, you know, like me, a lot of people are plugged in to their earbuds uh, or, you know, watching movies <laughs> or listening to podcasts or whatever. And uh, I just heard an interview recently with Zadie Smith where she was talking about her audience, like, you know, what do you think about your audience? And it was for her latest book, The Fraud. And she was like, well, I don't know. They're probably like me, you know, they're androids uh, to a certain extent. Um, and I wonder if, you know, the, the possibility for, for doing something and, and making change, if that is not, you know, hampered in part by, you know, what Will Self calls uh, bi-directional digital media and being obsessed with tech and phones and uh, being distracted, as it were. I mean, I think that the, the environment in Nani's time and current times is just a little bit different. Of course, and um, that's not to be underestimated. And I hate to sound uh, a bit romantic, but because my most direct and explicit exposure to the younger generation happens through my 16-year-old son, <laughs> I notice that he has zero interest in digital life nice. and social media. And I don't know if that's the reaction to the people just above him, but I think there are those who are saying, no, meet space only, please. So your son is a shining example of what the future may hold if we have the discipline. Uh, Rachel, thank you so, so, so much for, uh, for talking with us this morning. Again, it was uh, an honor and a privilege, and I appreciate you so much, um, and I'm and again, for, for sharing Nani Bellestrini uh, with an American audience and with our Kansas City audience. Thanks again. You're welcome. Thank you. The honor and privilege was mine. You're very sweet. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Bye.
Good evening, and welcome to another edition of Know Your Rights. This is Michael Amash with the law firm of Blake & Ulig. What and who is an employer? Seemingly simple and fundamental question, but with a plethora of business models currently in effect throughout the country, whether it be franchiser models, temp services, staffing firms, and on and on, the answer to that question is not always simple. With such an array of business models currently employed by American businesses, it can become difficult to determine not only who the, the employer is, but in circumstances where there may be more than one employer. That is where there is two or more entities that can control the day-to-day -day life of a worker. In order to account for these situations where there may be two or more employers of an employee, the National Labor Relations Board has implemented a joint employer standard. The framework of that standard and how broadly or narrowly it has been construed has been subject to change over the years. Significantly, how the board implements its joint employer rule can have a significant impact on workers and their rights under the National Labor Relations Act. On October 27, 2023, the National Labor Relations Board published a final rule addressing the standard for determining joint employer status. The final rule establishes that under the National Labor Relations Act, and importantly, this is under the National Labor Relations Act because there are different standards under different statutes, two or more entities may be considered joint employers of a group of employees if each entity has an employment relationship with the employees and if the entities share or co-determine one or more of the employees' essential terms and conditions of employment. Those essential terms and conditions of employment include wages, benefits, other compensation, hours of work and scheduling, the assignment of duties to be performed, the supervision of the performance of duties, work rules and directives, the tenure of employment, working conditions related to health and safety. This final rule rescinds and replaces a 2020 rule that was promulgated by the Trump administration and which took effect on April 27, 2020. The new 2023 rule grounds the joint employer standard in established agency principles. Thus, joint employer status is established through the right of control over those essential terms and conditions of employment, regardless of whether such control is exercised. You know, we've already discussed some of those essential terms, but significantly, a joint employer now has a duty to bargain over any term and condition of employment that it possesses the authority to control or exercise the power to control, regardless of whether that term or condition is deemed to be an essential term and condition for the purpose of establishing joint employer status. An employer, of course, even in a joint employer context, will not be required to bargain over subjects that it does not have authority to control. The board's new rule represents a change from the standard currently in place and expands the scope of inquiry for determining whether two or more entities are considered joint employers. Such an overhaul of the current standard represents a more favorable change in law for workers as the barriers necessary to establish that an entity is a joint employer is lowered by the proposed rule to go into effect this coming year. Under the new rule, employees will find it easier to bargain and organize with the entity that actually controls their day-to-day -day life than under the prior rule. Employers, for their part, will find it more difficult to hide behind complicated business organizations that have the effect of denying their workers their rights under the National Labor Relations Act. But the overall impact of the new rule is yet to be seen, as it will go into effect this coming year. And its impact will only be determined by how long it remains in effect, which is subject to our forthcoming presidential elections. 
That's all the time we have this month for Know Your Rights. Have a good evening. Now for the calendar, very briefly, because there isn't much going on, I want to tell you about Labor Notes Conference, which is April 19th to 21st, 2024. The Labor Radio Podcast Network is going to have a big presence there. We're going to be doing some um, workshops on how to do your own radio show or podcast. And you can find out information about Labor Notes and its conference at labornotes/events/2023. And that's it for tonight's show. Tune in next week. It's the 2024 Crystal Ball Show. What's in store for workers in the next year? Give us your predictions for 2024. Send them to heartlandlaborforumkkfi at gmail.com. Really, we're serious. Send us your predictions. Thanks to tonight's engineer, Stephen Hill. The Heartland Labor Forum is a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network of over 200 radio shows and podcasts from around the U.S. and the world. Find them at laborradiopodcastnetwork.org. And stay tuned. It's KC Tenants People Power Hour. listening to the Heartland Labor Forum, a show by and about workers, our workplaces, and our labor movement. We are radio that talks back to the boss. And you can talk back to us, too. Send us your feedback, your workplace stories, news, and ideas for shows to heartlandlaborforumkkfi at gmail.com. Our website, where we archive shows and post our upcoming ones, is heartlandlaborforum.org. The views expressed on this show are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any of the unions involved. Tune in every Thursday evening at 6 or to our rebroadcast Friday mornings at 5 right here, 90.1 FM. We still got our pride, cause we are the working class and that's the place to be. Struggle and fight for the common.